As a business that happens to be a law firm, we're all about service and attention to detail. Our clients deserve efficient and well-informed legal counsel. That's why we're sitting down to discuss pressing legal topics with subject matter experts and industry leaders. Because at Darrow Everett, we put the DE in dealmakers. Hello, and welcome to DE Dealmakers, a podcast by Darrow Everett, a full-service business law firm with offices in seven states. I'm your host, Emmanuel Subar Litvinov, a South Florida-based attorney in DE's Corporate Transactions Department. Joining me today is Mr. Dreamwater, David Lekach. In 2009, David started Dreamwater, a natural sleep aid bottled in a five-ounce shot, very similar to the famous five-hour energy drink, but does the exact opposite. David took an idea and over the course of nine years, created a company that generated almost $10 million in annual revenue before selling the company to Harvest One, a cannabis company, for almost $35 million in cash and Harvest One stock. David, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you being here. So let's get into it. Dreamwater, what was the inspiration behind it and how did you identify this market need for a natural sleep aid? So I'd like to take you know credit that I was either passionate about sleep or beverages, but it wasn't either. Um, it was taking you back a little bit um, before your time out in the corporate world, potentially that's me getting older. We had a terrible little thing called a, a financial collapse and recession in 2008. Um, and as we were working into the summer of 2009, I met my eventual co-founder, uh, Vincent, um, and we started off on this path of building what became Dreamwater. Um, I am somebody who, especially at that time, I was in my late 20s. Um, I used to have this problem that my head wouldn't shut off at night. So even though I was super tired and I had a long day, the 12 o'clock at night would turn into 2 a.m. very quickly. And you still have to wake up at, you know, 7, 6, 7, 8 in the morning uh, and get started with your day. And so I had an, this issue of, you know, not being able to sleep, not being able to shut down correctly at night. And I just thought like, fine, I'll power my way through the day the next day. Um, and then all of a sudden I met Vincent who came into my office. I was doing investment banking at the time, looking to raise some money for this thing. It was like eight ounces. He, he hates when I say this, but poorly packaged kind of, you know, syrupy, not that great uh, thing called dream water and sleep aids don't really work on me. So I, but I tried it. I went home that night. I tried it. Um, I fell right asleep. And I woke up the next day with two thoughts. One, there's no way that just worked on me. And then my second thought was like, there's no way I just found the anti-Red Bull. There has to be something like this out there. There has to. And I was living in New York at the time and I couldn't find anything walking up and down the streets, you know, hitting every bodega that I could. Google showed me nothing. And I said, this has to exist. There's so many things out there, pill form, powder form, certainly liquid form from coffee to energy drinks and the like that lift you up, nothing to calm you, to calm you down. And so I said, there's gotta be a lot of people like me out there. Um, let's go out and let's, let's, let's see what we have. And that was really the, 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 the bet and the thesis is to test out and see if there was a need for what ultimately we, we commercialized was a two and a half ounce liquid shot that helps you relax and fall asleep. That's great. That's great. And then, so what were some of the biggest challenges you faced while building this dream? All, everything. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's, a, it's a very open-ended question. What I will say is 
I looked at it both as an opportunity and a challenge because in the sense that I wasn't just brand building, I was category building. Um, again, there was nothing like this out there. And we were the first ones to come out. And right after we started to launch, we launched in mid-December 2009 with Dwayne Reed with the idea of putting the city that never sleeps to sleep. And uh, almost immediately, there was like a second, you know, entrant into Dwayne Reed specifically, which I it blew my mind that somebody else could have been working on such a unique novel thing at the exact same time that I was. I just got to market more correctly, faster, and with a better prop, overall proposition than they did. Uh, and then a lot of people, both startups plus established companies over the years tried to compete with us. I never looked at competition as bad. I looked at competition as very, very good. Uh, again, because not one brand does a category make. So I had this idea that I'm going to build a category. My goal was to define it, yeah. right? Oh, like, yes, yes, yes. There's certain brands that yes. will define a category, right? Scotch tape, great yeah. one, right? Better than Coke. Coke is not a great example, but Scotch tape is a great one, right? Like you would call it Scotch tape, but that's a brand. It's not, yeah. it's, otherwise it's just tape, you know? So how whatever. did you guys do that? Because if we're out there and the first time that you're really experiencing a like a lightly flavored liquid that helps you go to sleep. If the first mm -hmm. time that you're experiencing it and you have a positive experience with it is dream water by default, I was like, great, you'll, you'll experience it with us. Yeah. Um, or maybe if we all got big enough, then I'd worry about getting you to switch from brand X to me, but we never necessarily got that far, both as a category and as a brand that I had to worry about that. It also, for whatever it's worth, and this sort of, you said, what were the challenges and things like that? Like, um, it helped me very, very early on to get clear with this one competitor. And I became friends with everybody. Like to me, it wasn't like we're competitors or whatever. I was actually fairly open and honest with whoever I deemed to be a potential competitive set. I even consulted for some companies, uh, the bigger ones that were trying to do sleep. I even consulted for them as the CEO of Dreamwater because again, I didn't, I didn't care. I, I looked at it as like, great, I'm just still going to do better. And the more people that bring awareness that this type of product and proposition exists is better for me. Um, so I, I, um, I went out there and I, um, and I was very clear on something that that first brand that was competing with me was a brand called Relaxin. I still remember the CEO's name was Brent. And, um, and so I looked at that and I said, Hey, Brent, like, um, I would look at him and I would say, I learned basically, let me say this. I learned basically from that whole experience that while I have to know what's happening, in the category, in my industry, with the specific retailers that I was servicing, which was basically all the food, drug, mass, travel, retail, all throughout North America, not just in the US. Um, I needed to understand what was happening, but at the same time, I wanted to be like a little bit like, you know, like a horse with blinders on, right? And I, 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 I got very clear, very quickly at a young age, I was probably 30, 31, like, I wanna run my own race while paying attention to what everybody else is doing, but I need to run my own race. Uh, were you prepared to scale up once you had that Walmart meeting, especially since it wasn't in your plan? Um, so it depends on the product and the service, product or service and, 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 and where you are in, in the process in terms of what it looks like to scale up. We were doing shots at the time and I had, um, I always, almost from day one, um, not, not exactly from day one, but I had this idea that I had two different domestic-based uh, production partners. One was in Tampa originally, and then in Dallas and Dallas was the primary for the rest of my time in Dreamwater. And I always had two production facilities, A, to allow for scale, but B, also to manage the, the hedge that if something happened in one, I wouldn't be out of business uh, production wise. But I had a fully domestic supply chain uh, or almost fully domestic supply chain. 
Uh, so bottles, caps, labels, boxes. Uh, a couple of the ingredients came from some international extraction facilities, but they all came into the U.S. and then we processed, bottled, and then shipped from here. So I didn't really have to deal with import issues or anything like that. And, um, you know, I was able to grow fairly comfortably into uh, being the primary brand with any of my manufacturing facilities on the lines that I was on uh, inside of their manufacturing facilities. So, um, you know, I always had a very strong relationship with my, in this case, manufacturing base. I assume that that's what you mean by the scale up. Yes. Um, because we were, you know, it, you know, very limited amount of humans most of the time. So um, we didn't get human heavy, I guess, if, if we want to say that. Um, but, you know, I always looked at manufacturing. I looked at redundancy manufacturing as a risk management you know, sort of proposition. Um, but that also allowed me to, you know, scale if and when necessary and, and manage whatever we had going on at any given moment. That's great. Sounds like the way to do it. So I'm going to take us back to Dwayne Reed for a minute. You mentioned them for those who don't know, we do have New York offices, but for those who don't know, it's a convenience store, mainly based in New York and New Jersey, focused with a, a high volume type of uh, convenience store. Um, so how did that partnership start? Because if I, if I, correct that helped contribute a lot to Dreamwater's growth and to get you into other bodegas things like that so how did you start that partnership so this takes me back all the way back to the beginning i say i would say even pre-dreamwater um i met vincent at the start of the summer of 2009 so say may 2009 and we launched with a proposition that didn't exist right at the time it was like this eight ounce syrupy bottle we launched chainwide at Dwayne reed again in mid-december i mean that that in retrospect is insanely fast. Again, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we were just going through it and we had the opportunity and we, we took advantage of the opportunity. Um, so what ended up happening was at the time, because it was so unique and it didn't exist or anything like that, I would make you sign an NDA with me just to talk to you about what I was doing. And you say, what am I signing in an NDA for? And I'd be like, I can't tell you until you sign it. You know, this is 29 year old David, you know, and saying like, man, I have something that just doesn't exist. I don't want to put this out in the world. But then I got very clear in the U.S. is a giant geography and there's a lot of selling channels in the U.S. as well. So as we were thinking about, as I, I was thinking about sort of the go-to-market strategy in the launch, and I'm from Miami, but I've lived in New York a bunch and we ultimately ended up launching in New York and, and Vincent was from New York and, and so on and so forth. Um, the where and how to launch started to become that sort of question. And I got very clear real quick that this, this stupidity that I was doing with these NDAs, which wasn't so stupid in my mind, but this thing that I was doing with the NDAs wouldn't matter. And instead of launching in an ancillary market of which I included Miami, my whole thesis right at the beginning was, I want to see if I have anything for me and my investors. The first hundred grand or so came out of my pocket. And then the next million came from friends and family. And, and really within that very intimate friends and family, my dad was half that round. Um, and other family members were, were the parts of the other half and things like that. And whether, you, whether I knew you or not, this is a, a little bit of attention, whether I knew you or not, I took that you would invest in me, uh, very, very seriously. And so funny enough, I would consider everybody friends and family, you know, throughout the process. Um, so once we were going to launch, I didn't want to waste my time more than anything in ancillary markets. And, and when you started to do that math, plus the fact that I looked at it and I said, where do you tend to go to buy sleep aids. Sleep aids tend to be bought in drugstores. So Dwayne Reed, I was going to correct, is not entirely just a convenience store. It's just by default, it's in New York. But really, it's a drugstore that happens to be very convenience focused because there's so much foot traffic. So whatever you might need on your way home or 
out of the office or whatever you can get, but it's all really a drugstore. That's why, and they ultimately got bought by Walgreens. Um, and so the, the, um, the idea was fish where the fish are, let's see what we really have. So we started to think about New York and we, we had roots into that geography. We understood the market enough as, as, as residents of New York and, or at least we thought we did. Um, when we did that, and then we said fish where the fish are, well, Dwayne Reed became the obvious target. When Dwayne Reed became the obvious target, one of my friends and one of the original uh, employees that I brought into Dream Waters, Kid Adam, realized that he Christmased with the buyer of Dwayne Reed. Um, and when, and when you, so in other words, when we found geography, we found channel, and then we got around. And like I said to you earlier, I think that what we did was a good job of opening the door for Dream Water, but Dream Water did the selling. Once we realized Dwayne Reed and there was this relationship happened to be with the beverage buyer at uh, Dwayne Reed, we, it crystallized for us. Took the meeting. Again, Dream Water, very unique, novel proposition. And, and then we were off and running. You started in 2009 and dynamics kind of changed over the course of Dream Water's life, marketing channels, you know, SEO, everything like that. Can you talk about the innovation and how you had to stay, you know, adaptable to everything that was going on? You know, I gravitate toward e-commerce. Um, I think there's so much positives to be had. And I don't mean from a margin or revenue or sales perspective. I mean, like learning, innovation, um, you know, speed to market, like all these other things that I really care about that I love about e-commerce as a channel, direct to consumer channels. It doesn't just have to be your own website or anything like that. Um, and it's just, we got to go back to a, a day, you know, what life was like in 2010, 11, 12. Instagram, I think, started in 2012. Instagram didn't exist. Um, you know, forget any of the other. Kind of, only Facebook was the game in town in terms of social media. Um, even then, it wasn't the marketing wasn't machine even, that it yeah. is today. Um, Amazon, for me, was interesting because um, like every other, you know, big or small, you know, manufacturer, um, we would typically, and don't, don't hold me to this, but it's an overgeneralization, but it's pretty accurate. What everybody would do is you'd go and you'd say, and I was young. I was the elder statesman always in Dreamwater. So I, my whole team was a lot younger than me. But you'd go effectively, your youngest person on your team, and you'd be like, you're in charge of our social media. What am I supposed to do? I don't know. Just post. Do stuff. Right? But then what we would do is we'd take that same person and be like, and you're also in charge of Amazon. Um, and they didn't tend to know anything about anything. And Amazon wasn't what it was back in the day. When I started with Amazon, I really looked at it like a marketing channel, not like a sales channel. Um, and, and, and why, because I remember I was married at the time and I remember like at some point between my mom, my sister and my, my wife at the time, I would come home and there was always two boxes, one from guilt and one from Amazon. Um, always for some reason in, in the house, all of a sudden. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I started to look at that really, again, there's a revenue component associated with Amazon, but like, I even looked at that as like a, a marketing channel. You just want to show up correctly. Your brand should show up correctly in these kinds of, um, you know, channels and moments. Um, I did the same thing, by the way, first with the airport channel. I never looked at it like it's going to be a gazillion dollar revenue opportunity, but I was very clear that this was as close as I could get Dreamwater to the potential consumer where there was a real use education. And I was able to do it in a very premium channel called the airports. You know, so it was like really a marketing play that had a revenue component associated to it. Um, and the proposition was right. The thesis was right. Um, at least when I was there, our, you know, Dreamwater was the number one health and beauty item at Hudson News and LAX, for example. So I, I always 
if I would have been more focused on e-com, because my whole thesis at the beginning was really focusing on food, drug, mass mm-hmm. and convenience, because turning correctly, getting the right inventory turns and sell-through rates at those retailers opens up more opportunities and in theory is what gives you your scale. I wish I had found that you know, digital unicorn, that marketing unicorn, that somebody who could have been me, but on the e-com side, because I think that the, the dream water story would have been very different if not doing what I did. Look, I ended up building, you know, dream water to seven figure, you know, a year business. It still is probably on Amazon, um, on a relative single skew, but a way stronger focus on e-com. It probably would have led to a lot more, um, uh, growth, um, of the brand itself and of the financial components of the brand itself. If I had had sort of a clear, more, more maniacal focus on e-com like I did for real world retailers at the time. And so those mistakes, how have those helped you currently? We're going to jump around a little bit, but since you talked about mistakes a little bit, um, what have you been doing now that those lessons have helped you? I, I think that, you know, the, the, the Dreamwater experience, I was going to say story, but the Dreamwater experience taught me so much about me, taught me so much about work and business. And again, we can get into any of that because I think it's it's important to be a fairly open book, especially about overcoming the issues. It, this was not an overnight success story. This was not like a rocket ship to the moon type experience. Um, I, haven't, I haven't had the good fortune of that. Um, so I, I think I learned a lot about myself. I went through a divorce during my Dreamwater experience. I, I raised two little kids during my Dreamwater experience. Um, there's a lot that you learn about yourself in these journeys when, you know, I will say, I remember one of my sales guys at the time would, again, I was the other statesman. Um, and he would look at my, my, my chair in my office. I remember we we're standing in my office one day and, and he looks at the chair and says, I want to be in that chair. And I said, I hope you are one day, but you need to understand what it takes to sit there. Um, and I was learning it as I go. It's not like somebody said, here's the manual. And I don't think there is a manual. I think you're either predisposed or not. And I think that one of the scarier things is, the buck stops with you. Um, you know, you, I like to govern by consensus. I like to ask the people around me what's up, but the buck stops with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lonely place. It really is. Um, you know, my, my wife couldn't fully relate. I think she respected the, the, the hustle and the work ethic and, and what it took to get there. Um, and she certainly was, was flexible about letting me do that. My kids were flexible about letting me be in the office. My mom, hugely important part of the process to let me be the type of father I wanted to be while having to or thinking that I have to be as dialed in as I was with work. Um, I learned a lot about life. I learned a lot about, you know, grit, determination, uh, endurance. I mean, it's so many lessons and it translates into Mm -hmm. other components of your life. Um, I've been an integral member of uh, a group called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, for I think 12 years now. And, you know, again, I've learned a lot that I've contributed to that organization, the organization and, and its members have contributed a lot to me. So you know, whether it's building your networks and, and, and who you choose to gravitate and hang out with to, you know, those specific life experiences. I mean, all the things that we've had to deal with at the cannabis entity, for example, is too numerous to count. Um, and things that you can never, ever, ever expect. I, I confronted a lot of that in Dreamwater. So that this idea of like, well, now we're in uncharted territory. And I know it sounds weird because like, there's no way that we have unique problems, but we do. Definitely. No, that sounds like quite the the last few years and quite a lot of the lessons that you implemented currently towards your life. And I think that's great. I get excited about whatever that business milestone or progress is or working toward it. 
and the grind. If I can get myself excited about the grind, yeah. say the same thing to my kids. Yeah, I get it. Math is not as much fun as video games, right? But I, I have fun building data sets. I really do. I was doing a lot of e-com work for the last year and a half of my life. I was really working on data, you know, and math comes into play, kids, all the time. You know, math is good for you. Find the fun in it. Um, because if you do, man, you'll, you'll kick butt. If you don't, it's going to be a grind and it's going to be miserable. So how, when you started Dreamwater, did you have an exit strategy in mind? How did those influence? Uh, if so, how did that influence your decisions operations? Or did you just go in and think, hey, this is a great idea. I'm a young guy. Let's make some money. It's 100 more the latter, 100 percent more the latter, except the making money part. <laughs> I, I don't believe you can build something, something big, something real uh, with an exit in mind. I always thought that if I do enough of the right things along the way, the exit will present itself. And yes, it should be a lot of money, but I looked at the experience, the journey, the roadmap. I was 29 when I was getting started with it. I sold at 37, 38, so uh, somewhere in that range. So um, it was more about, you know, even in Dreamwater, right? Like when, whenever I would project what my sell-through would be at Walgreens or what my sell-through would be at CVS or, or Walmart, and I'm pretty good at that because from day one, I was always focused on data and, and all this stuff, right? So I, my predictability or my, my, my ability to predict you know, I'd like to think is, is grounded in something realistic, but I would never be remotely close to being right because there would be things that would happen if I got the right, you know, in-store display or in-store placement opportunity or whatever, where the projections, the actual results would be way greater than the projections. So what I started caring about more than anything was getting those right opportunities, right? Not, I, don't, I didn't care what the goal was. I didn't, I didn't have a goal. I didn't say you have to sell a hundred units per store per week. I would say, if I get this display, I should at least do 100 units per store per week, but it, easily I could blow it out of the water. 200, 250 units mm -hmm. per store per week. Um, so I cared about those, the how you're getting there, not where the destination was. That, that's very interesting that your mindset was a little bit different and you focus instead on the how to get there. Well, especially when I put my investor or advisor hat on and I hear exits as part of like a business plan, uh, I kind of, honestly, I find that as a red flag. So let's not convolute the two, right? What I thought we were going to go toward is it's very normal standard conversations to be had, especially inside of an EO group that you set goals. Yes. I'm terrible at goal setting <laughs> because of this. See, my mindset doesn't allow me. My mindset says focus on the, the means, not not the end, right? Yeah. What is it? The, the way is not the mean, like whatever it is, like I f focus on how you're getting there, not what the end result is. Because if you do the how better, mm. as great as you can, that the, the net result will be higher. And the way you got to grind to get to that point, it can burn you out. It can really burn you out. It will burn you out, not can, it will. Um, so if you don't work for something past that moment, or if, it, or I could say it the other way, if you're not beholden to this seminal moment happening within this time frame, you can endure you can overcome. If you are waiting for that moment or you're, you're waiting for that huge moonshot, you know, we're living that right now in the cannabis business. I don't think that that moonshot, you know, trajectory, whatever is ever going to happen. It's ever going to materialize. So now what, what are we left with? How do we work through that? How do we deal with that? Because all the nonsense and all the terribleness and, and things that you can't even anticipate are going to be problems become problems. How do you overcome that? How do you get to that moment where you can announce an exit? It's not easy. If you have that goal in mind, that's true. Ex exit, you know, in Y time, too hard. That's true. That's such great insight. Makes me think of two th two things I've heard. One of them, 
it's on a podcast, is you can't teach somebody how to be an entrepreneur. You have to live through the fires, live through those 3 a.m.s because you just can't teach that. And it has to be kind of in your blood and a lot of people don't make it. And I, I've met you EOers and you guys are your very own breed of, of crazies and it's incredible Weird. to watch. Dreamwater, I guess, arguably was a success. All things considered, not the success that I wanted, but it was a success in different ways and in different levels. Not as big as I ever imagined that it can and should be. It really is a wonderful product and brand and proposition. But if I knew exactly how it was going to play out for me, my portion of the Dreamwater journey, would I have done it again? And simply put, I don't know. So if I had known and had the experience to know what it would take to get from point A to point B, I might not have done it, even knowing how it was going to play out. You know, I hear this, this advice and I find it very hard to reconcile, like follow your passion. I don't know what it is, but I get passionate about components of it. I get passionate around helping people. Like for me, and not in an altruistic way, I mean, if we had more time, I can delve into it, but um, it what sustained me to overcoming like more days sucked than not at Dreamwater was these emails that I would get. And I remember almost at the beginning, I remember almost at the beginning, um, we had started selling to a couple of stores here in Miami because I was here. And this lady had written me like, a, like an email like this big that her nephew, her sister's son had, look, I still remember this all these years later, had still gotten into, had gotten into a motorcycle accident and her and her sister were rotating, sleeping with him every night for like a month in the hospital. And that they couldn't have done it without Dreamwater. Wow. And I say that to share like, honestly, and it's not BS in my case, it really, it wasn't about the money. I didn't pay myself a dime for the first five years of Dreamwater. And even then I made more money, operationally speaking, you know, not working for Dreamwater, in other words, getting my contract paid out, yeah. you know, post acquisition, than I ever did working for Dreamwater for the eight plus nine years. Um, you know, again, I'm very open about that. Um, it was the impact that mattered. So can you walk us through the decision to sell Dreamwater to Harvest One, especially you mentioned a few PE firms came by, knocked on your door and said no. What factors did you consider? Why Harvest One? And what was that process like? You mentioned you stayed on a little bit. Just take us through the acquisition process and post-integration process. Um, it's a deep story. It's a longer story. But I guess in brief, Dreamwater did not turn out to what I wanted it to be. Um, I had my highest highs and lowest lows in, in about a four-month span in 2013. Um, and Can you take us what that looks like? Don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I, I, what did I, I, you I got want an amazing... it to be? And... Well, I, I thought we were going to scale like crazy, you know, the revenue should scale to 50, $100 million fairly quickly. You'll potentially either get investments or some sort of exit opportunity then. Again, not that that was my motivating factor, but, you know, it was just going to go like this. And it did. It went like one to two and a half to five to, you know, it started to scale. But then all of a sudden, I started to get on the hockey stick growth curve. I had the first quarter of 2013, if I recall correctly, I didn't have a month worse than a million dollars in sales. Um, and the writing was on the wall for me. So that happened where the, the reset actually happened somewhere around April-ish of 2013. And by September, I, I was already being pulled out of the front ends, not out of the pharmacy section where I was originally, but out of the front ends. And that big opportunity that led to this, it, it teetered off almost immediately. Um, and it wasn't the financial impacts of that. It was, I didn't know it at the time, but that, that startup up until that moment of time, culture that we were 
that we had that we talk about always in EO and, you know, in, in entrepreneurship that you want to set the right culture at work and all that stuff, whatever we had it, it'll, it'll probably be like the best corporate culture I'll have ever experienced ever in my life. And it was not by design. I would say like Sunday fun day, cause I was going to go work in the office and three people would beat me to the office. Well, I used to have, you know, we used to work out in the office. We used to live together, play together, you know, work together, you know, like it was in every way from me all the way down to everybody in the organization. Like it was, it was awesome. And when you lose that momentum, because you're working yourself for this like awesome opportunity that Walmart unlocks it and it should go like this and it doesn't now what? Um, I ended up losing my co-founder Vincent. I ended up losing my brother, Joseph. Um, I ended up losing my head of finance and my head of logistics in September of 2013. And I just thought it was over, you know, and, and, and what am I doing? But when I, because I didn't have any debt and because I didn't have any bells and whistles on my equity, um, there was no gun to my head. And then I just kept surviving the next day and then surviving the next day. And then my dad, who I attribute a lot from an advisory perspective to me and a guidance perspective to me, uh, a role model perspective to me, you know, he, he would, in his way, which was usually demeaning and insulting and all of that, but it was very motivating for me. Um, in his way, he, he would kind of tell me like, why are you here? Like, why are you showing up at the office every day? Like, why are you still here? You, you're destined for more, like this can't be it. And so I said, well, but that got me to think like, well, if I'm going to keep showing up at the office, what am I going to do? Why am I going to keep showing up at the office? And immediately I got back into the things that I liked innovation. I ended up the, the, in, in happens to be in cannabis, again, me selling to a cannabis business and having a separate cannabis, nothing to do with one another, but sleep was one of the biggest is one of the biggest medical need states. When you speak about the medical components of uh, marijuana and cannabis. And, um, and so I was very attuned to that. And so in 2014, nobody had heard of the word CBD uh, or full spectrum hemp or anything like that. But in 2014, when the farm bill passed and because we had been looking to do something in cannabis, whatever. And so with my brother, we were very attuned to it. Um, I was in Kentucky at the end of 2014, looking at the first outdoor hemp farm, um, to explore how to put this active ingredient into dream water you know, from a, a sleep perspective before that word ever existed in the in the the commonplace of, of, of today's society. Uh, I played with it from a cannabis a THC perspective, not just from a full spectrum hemp perspective. I, I, um, you know, I got back into innovation. I, I, I had these powder sticks, which were my favorite. Um, and we launched the powder sticks on the e-com Amazon primarily, and we quickly became our number one SKUs online. Um, it's still what I use to this day is really those powder sticks. Um, uh, I had made from a functional development perspective, I had made things like, uh, Dream Water Beauty, so nighttime, the same nighttime formula, but with things like, you know, hyaluronic acid and, and collagen or things like that, that would help, in theory, your body do stuff while you're sleeping. And I had the same thing queued up with, I call it Dream Water Sport for nighttime muscle recovery. So like being back in innovation, yeah. looking at what I liked about Amazon and working with Amazon and my own website versus like, you know, the drudgery of these real world retailers and all the sort of the handcuffs that come with that and whatever. And all of that allowed me to unlock sort of that next phase, that next, you know, phase. And then I sold Dreamwater into parts of that phase coming, coming to fruition. Um, and, and so again, it was sort of like a, a mindset thing, right? If we're going to distill that story into something mindset, mindset allowed me to not just survive, but get into the things by doing the things that I liked, the things that brought me, 
happiness and joy and things like that or whatever, um, I was able to start to come up and have a second wind. In the summer of 2017, I had a Canadian distributor. And along the short of it there was, it was a buy-sell arrangement and I had to do all the work anyway. Me or one of my people took every sales call in North America. Mm. So I don't care if you were pitching somebody in Mexico to Canada. I don't care if you were a 50 store chain or 500 store chain or 5,000 store chain. One of my people was going to be there. That that helped in a lot of ways. Again, different part of the story. But my Canadian distributor was not performing. And I also, and I was friendly with him. I was doing all the work, obviously in the back end, but also on the front end. Um, and I was getting ready to cut him, but only because I didn't see what was in it for him. And I was doing all the work anyway. And, and so, you know, whatever, like, let's just, let's just get through it. Right. All of nowhere out of literally nowhere. Cause him and I to this day still have a great relationship. Um, he sends me an unsolicited term sheet to buy Dreamwater. I should take a step back from the start of Dreamwater all the way to the end. I viewed part of my job as the CEO of Dreamwater to always be interacting with investors, private equity, um, and strategics. So I always thought that that was part of my job because you never know you, you're prepared. Yeah. So when opportunities come to you, you're prepared to do something about it. And because I was suffering so much through this Dreamwater thing, I would have sold it to anybody for anything just to let me out of the process. Again, my younger brother was able to leave. Vincent was able to leave. Everybody was able to leave, but me, right? Again, there's drawbacks to sitting in that chair. Yeah, there really are. You're, you're going down with the ship. If that's, if that's the outcome, um, at least I, I think so. I think that that's at least at a bare minimum, the moral and ethical obligation we sign up to when other people invest in you. Um, and so he comes with an unsolicited term sheet, but lo and behold, I was able to flush it out and, you know, negotiate a little bit better. We had a backup plan. Should he not be able to close the transaction? Cause I knew he didn't have the money and he eventually ended up finding not through me. He, this was his, what he brought to the mix. He ended up finding Harvest One uh, up in Canada and we consummated the deal. Amazing. We sent a term sheet in around Thanksgiving of 2017 and it was closed, done by May, but really by the end of April. Um, and in May, wires and everything and, and we were done. So I thought that that was pretty efficient, pretty fast, um, certainly in a complex because they were publicly traded in Canada. Um, and and it went through. Again, if, if you want, we can get into it, but it, there's a lot that goes into how the deal happened. And strategically, like I said to you, I referenced that we had a backup plan. Should the primary, you know, the deal itself not come to fruition, that would still get him what he needs, um, you know, and so on and so forth. And some of those things, you know, that I was doing during the deal process, um, ultimately, I attribute to why the deal got closed in the first place. Um, and then we closed it. If you could touch upon some of those things briefly, I, I won't keep you too much longer, but... You know, I'm here for you. So DE deal makers. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the deal. I think it's very important to understand the motivations of whoever your counterparty is, whether you're selling your business, whether you're negotiating a contract, whatever. I think it's most important because I think being able to have an empathetic approach to negotiations, right? I, I know that it should be a win-win and we have all the, the, the commonplace terminology. I mean, you do M&A transactions all day, uh, you and your firm, right? Um, and so, so, you know, and again, there's a tried and true way of doing it, but I did it slightly different. I said, what I understood was this guy needed to do something. I knew he had raised a lot of money. I didn't know what he was doing, but I know that he, you know, he was a distributor. He's distributed other products or whatever, but he apparently raised a lot of money for Dreamwater Canada. 
Hmm. And I would say to him, I'm like, man, but like, you don't own anything. You just have like a buy sell arrangement. Like, you know, I, I, I would say to him with admiration, I would say to him, one day you got to teach me how you do this. And I thought I was going to raise money, but like, man, you're, you're, you're phenomenal. Like you don't even have anything. And you're sitting here raising money. Um, but he didn't have the margin potential in the buy sell arrangement. Hmm. So one of the things that I, and, but I, and I knew he didn't have the money to close the deal with me, but I knew that he was somebody who, who have tangentially seen raise money, like real amounts of money. So I didn't want this to be a disruption. So the deal was, this was like mid or mid to end of November or start of December that we signed it. And we put February 15th as a closing date. Why February 15th and not February 28th or something like that? Well, number one, it was because I wanted it to be a quick close. I knew it was going to be disruptive to me. And I also didn't want any of my employees to ever like get wind of this and like assume like, oh, it's going to happen. And then, I off the prize and, and, you know, we were in a good place. I didn't want to disrupt that. You know, that day came and went and it didn't happen. And it was okay because I said, great. I had contemplated that if we couldn't get a deal done and transacted upon, there's a backup plan. And that backup plan was that you're going to front me some cash. I needed to find ways to raise money. And that was going to be creative way to raise money. I, I had lived off my own cash flow for at least five years and I wanted a little bit more cash so I can go. I was in the process of building a whole digital ecosystem where I really wanted to drive up my subscription count of Dreamwater on my own website. Mm -hmm. So like I had this whole plan and it wasn't a conceptual plan. It was very detailed, very written out. I was executing against it. And if I had so, some more money, I can go faster against it and I can test more against it. So if I was able to bring in some cash ahead of time, I could do that while I'm doing everything else and really try to accelerate the, the direct to consumer component of the business there in 2018, right? As a time frame. Um, so we had that backup plan in place, but I had, charged money for every part of signing a document. Um, and again, that's where the details can come in or whatever. But basically there was, there was an upfront charge that was going to be applied to the deal. That's why partly they could say, yes, if you don't consummate the transaction of buying Dreamwater for me, it's not like you lose your upfront dollars. You, we can apply it against those upfront dollars that would come in a licensing agreement. Nice. Where I'd give it to you at cost plus. In Canada now, you have a margin structure that allows you to actually make money. On this whole thing, you're literally getting at my cost with none of my, none of my uh, overhead, and um, and I got some upfront cash to do the things that I want to do, you know, from a direct to consumer perspective. Yeah. Um, so the money was there, but because he had given me the money, and in his mind, he was already psychologically committed to Dreamwater's his, and he's going to buy it from me. Um, he kept going, and when we hit the February fifteenth, I said, "I'll give you an extension." He needs, he needed another month. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you an extension, but it's going to cost you. You got to put some more dollars up front. And at that point, now I restructured it. So it's not against the fees or whatever. So now he was pot committed. Uh, if he didn't ultimately close a deal with me, they were all in for about 725, 725, 700, 750, somewhere in that range over from November, from the first moment, February, March, and these extensions. Um, that's how much cash I had that was free and clear, but because he had the fish on the hook and because he was so committed to getting that exit done in the process and he had hard dollars against it, yeah. not sitting in an escrow account it was already in my bank account with no clawbacks, with no nothing that allowed me to make sure, or really for him, he just, he cared a lot more about getting the transaction done than me. For me, I just had my most profitable, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, almost a million dollars of revenue yeah. because I had zero cost of goods against it. And, you know, I was proud of that. That was good enough for me. I was like, great. Now I can keep going with what I'm doing. <laughs> but then they came in and, and because they had that level of commitment, not 
time and money. I hear that all the time. Oh, we put a lot of resources in the, it costs money. You know this, right? Yeah. Attorney fees, just the diligence to deal, uh, uh, you know, getting a, a real audit firm or an accounting firm to come in and diligence the, the company. That is a real commitment. There's dollars, but it's not dollars to the other side. Yeah. And so there's a different level of commitment when money's cross hands. Same thing in real estate, I would imagine, right? Yeah. When, when that money went hard, you're doing everything in your power to close that deal. Yeah. There's a, there's a there's a reason why the money has to go hard at some point, obviously. But once that happens, you, the, the acquirer is doing everything possible to do it. A lot of times the seller is like, man, I hope they default. I hope they don't. And I get to keep the money, right? I mean, yeah, am I exactly. saying anything out of line? Right? Exactly. No, nothing out of line. So, I got the money hard in the deal. And, and I believe and I would singularly attribute that aspect to why the deal ultimately closed. And mm. my Canadian you know, distributor that became the acquirer really cared so much to get the deal done. Amazing. That's the way you structure a deal right there. You know, it was odd because I, I am a big believer in having a middleman yeah. between you, between the negotiating parties, especially when there exists a realm where you're going to be working together mm -hmm. because it can get very adversarial. Yeah. You know, at times you can take things personally. I'm a big believer in that. But by the time I layered, I had one corporate attorney, this guy, Jamie in upstate New York. I physically met him in real life, like three times in my whole life. But I had one guy who would augment me. By the time I layered him into this deal, which was like somewhere in March, and again, the deal was effectively done by the end of April. Um, it was announced on May 3rd. Um, you know, the good cop, bad cop thing? Yeah. Well, and usually the attorney is the bad cop and I'm the good cop as a client. Well, it was the opposite yeah. way. I really mean it, not as a joke. So I was like, Jamie, you're the good cop now. <laughs> I'll stay as the bad cop, right? Uh, you smooth this over. Just make sure it's being papered right. Don't question me. Just roll with me here. Because he questioned me a lot. How can it be? How can it be? How can it be? Well, it, it is. You don't have to debate me, right? It's going this way. When I would ask for more money on these extensions, they've already given you so much money. You can't ask for more. Yes, I can. <laughs> um, and uh, um, and uh, I, I think I earned his respect after all that time with that deal. Um, but but that's how it was. I was the bad cop. You know, um, uh, professionals with experience that know what they're doing came into play here in this in this new entity um, that sort of existed called Horvus One. Um, and uh, they couldn't have done worse. They couldn't have screwed it up worse. Um, but I was very clear on the fact that I was very proud of what I had done and where I had gotten it to. And I was clear with my journey and my personal experience and I was clear with the potential outcomes. So if it does well, I'm attached effectively. If it does well, I'm attached to a success story. If it does, if it stays the same or does worse under somebody else's, you know, guidance, well, then that just speaks to what I was able to do with what I had available to me. So I, I in my mind, I had already cleared up that this was going to be a win-win in either direction. Um, and I felt good about it. And I, and I said to myself, they earned the right. They paid for the right, not earned, sorry, I apologize. They paid for the right to do whatever the hell they wanted with it. Um, so there was no weird or bad blood, but I was just like, look, man, you're giving my lanes, I'll go. If not, then just I'll sit here on the side and yeah. you guys do what you got to do. And they were nice enough to buy me out and not make me wait. And I was like, great, thank you very much. There you go. And that was it. Yeah, it works. That's a, that's a way to end you know, a long journey. So, David, we, we need to wrap up a little bit here. Um, I appreciate all your time. Uh, last question would be, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those looking to enter into various spaces that you're in, e-commerce specifically, since that's been one of your most you know, recent experiences? 
I mean, there's a lot of advice out there, but I think that the, the key of all of this is get clear on what you want and why you're going to do what you're going to do. And I don't mean just for yourself, with the community that you're going to serve, with the customer base that you're going to serve, with the clients that you, you plan on providing value to. Get clear on your why. And I don't mean like the Simon Sinek why necessarily, but get clear on why you're going to do what you're going to do. Be open to that personal and professional growth and development, you know, like not just having a plan and sticking with it, react to what's going to happen um, and, and, and work through it and work through it. Um, if you're onto something good and real and big, you, the world is going to tell you to keep going uh, fundamentally, even if you're going to want to quit, you're going to want to get to that finish line, whatever you think that that finish line is in that moment um, and go through the journey. I, I, I am a believer in it is better to have love, loved and lost than to never have loved at all. Um, you don't want to be on your deathbed whenever that might be, hopefully far out in the future and say, I wish I had, mm -hmm. especially when you're younger and you have less responsibilities in life. I am a huge fan of take all the risks that you can in your 20s, in your 30s, before you have a family and kids or whatever, so that you can have that part of your life nice, tight and complete. Right. Better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. That's great. That's a great takeaway. Well, David, I genuinely appreciate you taking the time being with us here today and talking about your deals and your insights and cycling and plethora of other items we touched upon. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to hearing a lot of all of your podcasts that you're going to be coming forth from you and the law firm. Thank you, David. Thank you.